episode of coming up next thanks for tuning in thanks for streaming thanks for downloading uh if you are in fact downloading or streaming this episode and uh you know this show is uh, brought to you free every week um thanks to your support so if you could continue supporting by uh, actually hitting the magical subscribe button on uh, on your itunes or your stitcher app uh, which you can find if you go to comingupnext.com.au You'll find links to Stitcher, Podbean, uh, and iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Uh, I don't normally segue straight into the interview, but uh, I have a, a special guest with me this week. Um, when I uh, when I started at film school, actually, uh, on the very first day that I was there, the very first person that I spoke to uh, is uh, is the man who's sitting across from me now, um, and he has. Uh, He's lived uh, quite uh, an incredible and creative life to date. He's um, about a year and a half ago moved back to Melbourne after having lived in Los Angeles for uh, for just over five years, working, uh, you know, at the highest level in the film industry in um, in in what he was doing there. And uh, I'm just going to keep preambling until you actually say something, uh, Damo. But my guest this week is uh, is Damien Chehi, is how you pronounce that name that you would have seen in the title. That is correct. Thank you for the uh, warm introduction there, Alistair. I don't know how warm it was, um, but you know what is warm? This whiskey that we're going to drink while we uh, while we do this episode. We're in uh, we're in Cove at the moment. Yeah. Do you um, want to paint the picture of exactly where we are? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I've done this podcast in a whole uh, array of settings and locations, and this uh, this this one may take the cake. Um, I've, I've done it in. Uh, in Melbourne, I've done it around Australia. I've done it in LA and uh, London, and but uh, we're in a, a little seaside. Well, let me town. ask you this, Alistair: Have you ever done it in Ireland? <laughs> this, is, this is certainly <laughs> a first. Uh, we're about to drink some Irish whiskey from the Jamison Distillery, which uh, which we visited and uh, and drank from uh, the did. other day. We're, we're actually in a small spare bedroom right now. Um, I'm going to try and dim the lights, if that's okay. I don't think you can dim the lights. I think it's one setting. Yeah, it's off or it's on. (laughs) Now it's been uh, lit by the light in my... You don't have any cellular phone manufacturers or sponsors. Can I say what kind of phone this is? Um, I mean, if you really want to let people know that you still use a BlackBerry, that's okay with me, but uh, it's not not something I'd be publicizing. The room is lit by the backlit capability of my Nokia 3310. (laughs) So, shall we drink these uh, these jammies? In uh, we, we've got little uh, little party packs um, while we uh, while we reminisce about our lives as uh, as struggling creatives. It seems quite fitting that we would drink whiskey while we do that. Yeah. So, I guess uh, to paint the picture for those who may or may not be listening, uh, we stopped at the Jamison Distillery. Well, I think anyone who's up... listening is probably listening. Yeah. Well, there, we, there you have it. Um, <laughs> and we picked up a. Uh, a set of four miniature bottles, like the ones you find in a hotel room that you've never wanted to actually open up because you don't know what it actually is going to cost you. Mm. Or at least that's just me speaking. Um, well, but we I have think... a few to choose from. There's four. Um, which one are we going to start with? 
Well, I reckon we just start from the uh, the classic Jamison Irish whiskey, which is your far left. Oh yes. Um, that's it in your hand there. Um, so maybe if we maybe if we just start with these and we work our way from left to right, as wait, is wait, the traditional of, English way. Bit of silenced. Yep. Yeah. The sound of it opening up. <laughs> uh, I'm going to drink mine out of this lovely butterfly mug. Yeah, I can't open mine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yours has got the child lock on it. Yeah. Push down and twist. Right. I'm just going to pour it in my Jamison branded glass, which I purchased in the gift shop. Oh, okay. It does smell delicious. All right. Well, cheers, Alistair. L'chaim. Or sloncha, as, uh, as we, we were taught to say here. Um, so, I mean, while we were in the car uh, out in, in Ireland... Um, you you were playing me a whole lot of your music that you've been writing and producing over the last. Uh, I want to say it's <laughs> what feels like decade, but it's probably not quite that long. Um, uh, I've been yeah, I've been dabbling with uh, in the the arts of music uh, since I was probably about ever since I started playing an instrument, which would have been when I was thirteen. Oh, what? How old are you when you're seven? Uh, 12, yeah, twelve. Yeah, I'm now 31, going on 32 in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so maybe I'll release this on your birthday. This is live, right? Can someone please tweet in uh, how many <laughs> years that has been? You don't have Twitter. No, I don't. They can tweet you at Instagram at Damo the C. Uh, 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 C stands for cunt, by the way. Send send the calculation to uh, Cove uh, in Ireland. <laughs> the coordinates. Um, yeah, Jesus, care of the Pentagon. <laughs> Uh, so no, tell me, tell 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 me uh, about you know your first experience with uh, with a musical instrument. Um, oh, well, I don't come from a particularly uh, music family at all, um, and the school that I went to in the far out eastern suburbs of uh, Melbourne um, had a music program, and my f- folks uh, knew how my tendency to you know when you're a kid you get into something and you give up pretty quick. Um, and I think they suspected that when I wanted to learn an instrument, I was pretty keen on learning the drums, uh, but my folks didn't want to invest in that. So there was an old guitar, uh, that my dad quit at a very early age, uh, in, in the closet. So, um, I was, uh, told that if I wanted to play an instrument, it would be that. Um, so yeah, I, I dabbled with it. I did a couple of guitar lessons, uh, basically quit the guitar lessons. So my parents, uh, um, had good foresight on that end, but I still, I still kept it up in the end. I still, you know, sort of, uh, strummed away at it. It took a, took me a, like anything. It took me a long time to get proficient in it because I was self-taught. I never really, uh, Oh, hear that? I don't know if anyone will hear that. We're, uh, we're, we're right near a cathedral that, uh, chimes every 15 minutes. So you should get probably at least four chimes <laughs> yeah. during this, uh, during this, loosely coined interview they've been playing songs and it's kind of like the piano in westworld where it's got you will hear like a contemporary song <laughs> it's a rolling stone song played by <laughs> church bells yeah it's like a it's like a 200 year old uh church effectively and uh and i'm waiting for it to play spoon man or something um anyway we digress uh but yeah anyway yeah i've been sort of been dabbling for a while and uh yeah i've been making tunes for as long as I think it's easier to, to write an original than it is to play someone else's because you can't get that wrong. 
was music your first uh, dalliance with creativity or was it like was no, it Power Rangers was my first right <laughs> which Power Ranger what, which one was I yeah Blue you connected Billy. with the Blue you connected with Billy yeah yeah I don't know why was it because he, he was, was sort a of the outcast? He was like the nerdy guy, and we're talking season one Power Rangers here, the original. Yeah, before they all had pay disputes and had to <laughs> be recast. Did you have those uh, like head flippy action figures, uh, where, where their head would flip between having the normal head or the Power Ranger head? No, that was like the second generation. I, I was pretty OG, like the original. Like, I'm sure that was original. Yeah, I think, but like that was kind of it could have been, but I I only had the finest, like the original. Right. You know, the figures were like you know quite large. You know, like thirteen inches. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, those yeah, ones. those ones made me feel inadequate. <laughs> no, they're the ones I got. It took me <laughs> took me a long time to accrue them all. Anyway, um, but yeah, as far as like creative, no, it's not. I, I've always been a creative type. It's, I used to draw as a kid. I used to. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know that question that I like to ask everyone about the first time they remember doing whatever it is that they did. Oh, the first time I was creative. Um, I, I remember there was a very profound, uh, very profound uh, moment in my childhood where I, I remember uh, my primary school teacher, uh, Mrs. Damore, uh, asked me to, she picked me out of all of the class to cut something out. And she said, that's because Damien can cut really well he cuts like <laughs> cuts on the line <laughs> and, it's a, and i felt you know that's when i kind of felt yeah. my creativity burst out of me and i was like you know what i've been recognized I, you got some validation yeah she later on uh diagnosed me as being like add or something like that and then it was a whole thing and it turns out i wasn't i just you know just she gave really you some care. pills to, pl- to blunt your yeah scissors she it's kind of funny now i reflect on that she she did so much for, for as far as nurturing any creativity, um, but yet stunted my development by <laughs> accusing me of having some like um, difficulties in my um, learning. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, were you, were your parents? I know you said that your your mum thought, and perhaps rightly so, that your interest in in music would be fleeting, but. Yeah. Were your parents? I know you're like you're a first generation Australian. You've got you know two migrant parents. Were they supportive of you as a creative person, or were they a bit more like, well, that's something that you can do on the side? I mean, you you said in your introduction we met in film school, so my parents were clearly very supportive to allow yeah. me to make such a dumb decision, <laughs> like go to film school. And it is a dumb decision. Yeah, well, yes and no, but like... Well, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here in, uh, exactly, in code. Yeah. If, I mean, uh, I, I, if, if there's one thing, I, yeah, I badmouth it and, and jest like that, but um, but I got I got a career out of it, I guess, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, um, uh, were they nurturing of it? Yeah, mum, mum def- mum's very creative. She's always been an artist. Um, she's... Uh, uh, in my entire childhood, she was always doing something creative. I was one of the few five-year-olds doing decoupage and like. What's decoupage? Decoupage is like the that um, it's using papers and stuff like that to build images and like scrapbooking. Can't no, it's more like uh, I'll I, I don't know how to really describe it, but it's where you basically lay a um, kind of like cut. Oh, I'd have to give you some kind of visual. We'll Google reference. it later. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it involved like rice papers and such uh, being adhered to um, glass and layers, and you put a lacquer on it, all this kind mm. of stuff. Um, various versions of that. Um, I took an interest in folk art at one point. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of um, uh, clay, you know, and all pottery, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, I've always been kind of into that. Mum nurtured it. Um, being first generation, and I think they were just happy enough to have, you know, raise someone in a different culture, I guess. And mm. um, yeah, it's supportive. The fact that we, you know, any job is a good job kind of thing. So they're, they've been very supportive as far as being creative. Um, I can't say, <laughs> I don't know if I'd be as supportive as, as they will be. I will be. Yeah, I plan on you know, someday. When you're um, the dog. But they were very loose. They're like, if you're into it, go for it, which is a really good way of doing it. Um, but I don't think I'd support anyone to get in the film industry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, you're unique in terms of people that I speak to in the sense that you have a lot of different kind of... I mean, I speak to a lot of people who are multifaceted in their kind of creativity, but you're an extreme example where you kind of... You have so many creative funnels that you want to sort of... Uh, look through or filters that you want to be looking through whether it's through writing or music or um or filmmaking uh and i know that when you're in high school you did some acting as well mm-hmm. where would you say that you're kind of at your most creatively comfortable um first off just to like help frame what you were just explaining imagine all like there's a pipe and it's only like, you know, two inches wide. And you've got all those things. I like to draw. I like to uh, act. I like to perform. I like to play music. I like to write music. I like to write things. It all gets jammed in a pipe. <laughs> and nothing comes out the other <laughs> and end. And a little drop comes out the other end. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, I need some like... Um, you're creatively uh, constipated is yeah, what you're saying. I need some Drano yeah. in there. Uh, you know, something you, to... You've got Gaviscon. Well, you need, you need like some sort of creative Gaviscon. Oh, yes. Uh, Alistair is making reference to the Gaviston, Gaviscon that I brought up um, to preempt any uh, heartburn that might happen during this <laughs> this tasting uh, session. <laughs> because on this podcast, we both turned 58. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very prepared. <laughs> I, I brought that across the other side of the planet in preparation of like, I knew something, there would be a time uh, where it will come in handy. And I suspect tonight's tonight. drank whiskey and got hot. <laughs> oh, who am I to complain? I've got a, my back is not, is, is fucked. <laughs> We're falling apart, man. We are. So, so your original question. Yeah, answer was, my question. Uh, re- recap the question as I've forgotten it. What, uh, where do you find your most comfortable creatively? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not like, like you've, like today, it's probably the first time I've shown you a lot of my music. I've shown it to you in the past, but probably yeah, tonight, uh, today has been the most. It was a, mm. I subjected you to what an hour of just demos and things. Yeah. Um, so a lot, even though that's something I do, and I've done for more, like more than half of my existence, um, it's not something that a lot of people who know me it would probably come as a surprise if a lot of people heard anything you heard today. It's not something I'm broadcasting you know i'm not and that's probably goes into what your question is about where you're most comfortable that's probably where i think i'm the uh my strongest um 
expression of any creativity is in that. Um, but I'm not necessarily super comfortable in, you know, sharing it and mm. very, you know, a lot of self-criticism in that comes along with that. Um, but yeah, probably, probably just playing music is, would probably be where I'm the most comfortable. Um, but also I like to think that my humor has a lot of creativity in it now. <laughs> and I think you would agree. Yeah, but you just give that away for free. <laughs> exactly. And that's probably where I feel the most comfortable. <laughs> so there's my answer to your question. Next. Jokes. Jokes is the answer to your question. To yeah, question, I guess it is. Yeah. yeah I, uh, right. Yeah. So puns, what, maybe? Puns, yeah. Why, why don't you think that you feel particularly comfortable in sharing your music because you know it's really good it's good stuff and it's stuff you work hard on and it's stuff that you put a lot of kind of raw emotion and um are we up to number two no not yet not quite well it's a number two question yeah i know it does feel like a number two question (laughs) but fuck it i'm asking you now Mm. all right let's go into number two i'm not quite ready yet what was all that number two? We're going to be out of sync. All right, well, let me get ready. You you start answering, and I'll and I'll finish this off. <clears throat> um, why uh, do I find it hard to be vulnerable uh, with music? Is what yeah, you're asking. Correct. Um, I, I think it's because it's. Uh, I think it's. I, I don't know how a lot of people deal with anything they have to deal with, um, who aren't creative. Because um, I found that's a good way. It's a good outlet uh, to express or at least makes I, I need to externalize a lot when if i've got something on my mind I, it's easier for me to um say it out loud to um understand what's happening so i find that if i do music it, it'll involuntarily come out and you can kind of make sense of it from that and uh, so it's like a stream of consciousness yeah yeah and, and i guess in order to share that would be to you know you, you understand like like we've when a lot of not that I would compare myself to any other successful artist, but um, they talk about how like it's all very, very, they're very vulnerable of what they're saying, and as a result, they tend to be quite cryptic. Mm. So um, when people write a song, it's a bit, it's ambiguous enough for someone else to relate to it, but they're clearly talking about something. Um, and I guess yeah, it's it's that's probably the reason why it's a bit. I'm not like I'm not you know I'm not trying to be you know. A, uh, I'm not. I have no real. Uh, I, I, I have. I don't feel compelled to put it out there. You know, I, it it serves its purpose. Like it it I, it allows me to externalize and um, have a bit of fun. And you make, you know, you get to make. Uh, you create something out of air. You know, you're making mm-hmm. air vibrate, and you know it's unique. It happens in the moment. Like no one else. No, even if you play the same chord, you or same note um it's real and it's analog and it's happening and it's you know you can't you you can't help but be original because what you're doing even if you're playing a note that's been played a trillion times before it's happening then and there it's as real as it's realer than it ever was you know so i think that's kind of cool um well i mean you clearly take a lot of joy from sharing it like today when you were showing it to me and you mentioned that you'd shared it with one of our other mutual friends as well and there's you know there's obviously but there's there needs to be i guess a certain level of uh maybe security in the person that you're sharing it with yeah i guess so i i, I think yeah I'm, I'm just also getting to the point where i've done it i've played around it for so long and t- enough time goes 
from the creation of something that you you feel d- detached from it to the point where you can um, hand it off to someone else and mm. look at it subjectively as they would and not be you know attached to it. Are we on number two now? Yeah, let's let's uh, let's go for number one? two. Number two is a cask mates, Jamison. We got. I feel like we got this one. I can't open. I feel like we got deep early, and now we're gonna like we're not utilizing the uh, beverages to them. Oh, don't you worry. They're like truth serums. Yeah, <laughs> this should be a new ploy when when getting people. You can lure people. Right, in. lure people in with Jamison. Yeah, we might alienate some <laughs> of the guests. It also might be an expensive podcast. It, <laughs> <laughs> Well, this was only this is twenty euros. euros. Each. That converts to six hundred Australian. Uh, yeah, I think it's about six hundred and forty, but uh, we'll just round it. Dollary dues. Dollary dues. Slancher. Slancher. So I guess what do you? Oh, that's much better. That is quite nice. What 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 do you see? Uh, you know, because I'm a big advocate for like making stuff and just putting it out. And I think over the years, personally, I've developed a much more, and I'm uh, doing a weird thing at the moment, but I'm not, I'm not intending to kind of, uh, I'm, I'm intending to draw a comparison between a creative process where I'm like, let you know, just fucking do it and get it out. Whereas for you, it's perhaps more cathartic in, in nature. Mm. Um, what do you what do you see as the role of creativity because I guess it, you know if you look at things existentially which you know we'll both be dead at some point in time and it will be as if we never existed so the stuff that we leave behind is sort of inconsequential anyway it could be by the end of this interview because <laughs> yeah <laughs> you live a failure um, I guess what do you see when when you're creating stuff and when you're making making work whether it's well, I guess your primary create source of creativity at the moment is your music. What what do you see? What what do you see the role of your music as in a in a kind of bigger picture sense? Uh, well, actually, it's funny that um, because I've like I said, I've been doing it for so long, um, and I've recently been sort of migrating hard drives and data and such, and and I've actually been finding a lot of um music i've done a number of like cringe worthy stuff that i've done for a long long time ago but it's kind of cool because it's it's a moment in time like when you look at a photo you can see what you look like at a certain age and whatever style you're in or whatever uh, but it's interesting to hear your your voice and whatever you felt creative and it's a reflection of what i was listening to it's kind of like a journal entry um, i'm constantly recording stuff if you go into my phone you'll find little demos using the um, the app in there. Music Memos, for anyone listening, it's really rad. It's made by Apple and um, it allows you to record and you can put um, drums and automatic bass on it and stuff. It's you can get that of, on a Nokia? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you have to delete Snake to create <laughs> enough room for it. Uh, um, and yeah, so I think it's kind of cool to have like a, um, for me, like bigger picture, like I don't... It, I don't see myself, you know, um, I, 
So you're just kind of creating in a vacuum, basically. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it'll be, there's stuff that I reckon people would enjoy and, you know, I've got some hooky stuff that I think could would be cool to put out in the world. I think that's kind of phase, the next phase. Um, it's really cool for me personally to have like that, that kind of um, journal entry aspect to it where I can look back to a certain time and I know exactly. It, it's like when you smell something and you get taken back to a certain... Uh, memory it's all linked in that sense but when you hear it and i hear the rubbish that i'm singing about um it takes you back to whatever inspired that and it's a good way to kind of experience it on a different level that you wouldn't throw a picture um and so that's that's i guess that's a uh, that's not answering your question but that's like a good byproduct of doing it um it's uh but as far as bigger picture stuff i think it's just it's a good way to express that that uh, other people do it other way everyone's got people do it through sport people do it through you know being social people you know that's my advice that's how i kind of get it out um it'll be you know i've played in like bands and stuff like that and that's kind of cool like it's a, a, another byproduct of it is it's you've got that camaraderie of being with a group of people and collaboration and um but for the most part everything i've done like 90 percent of it has been kind of a solitary experience and uh in that um it's you know, it's good. It's kind of like a good, it's a very um, primal thing to do too. It's kind of like making sounds and, you know. <laughs> do you yearn for like, you know, the live band experience of playing in front of people? And Do I yearn for do it? Do you yearn? I don't. I Actually, um, the idea of like a touring artist actually sounds like a massive headache. I'm a bit of a homebody. Um It'd be cool to, yeah, it's been, it's, I've done it. It's fun. Um, it's better to play, like, I, I guess to something I, I was going to bring up earlier is that like, not all the stuff I do is very self-reflective. I, sometimes you just pick up a guitar and you belt out, um, belt out a couple of chords and you go, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And you start singing gibberish, you record it, you play it back and you kind of make sense of what the gibberish says. And you kind of have two options. You're either... Um, can look at what your subconscious is trying to say and translate that and you end up with this with a pretty vulnerable you know self-reflective thing or you kind of say oh, it sounds like I played you a song today called Dancing in Japan um, <laughs> and that's what the mumble sounded like when I was recording it and it sounded kind of cool but kind of quirky and and that become because it's not about anything it's just just gibberish ultimately um, then you, you're less it becomes less personal and I'm happy they're the kind of things I'm happy to share with people and th and that's the thing I'd probably be happy to you know perform live and I've enjoyed playing live in bands because half the time it's not really mine it's collaborative it's a group of people who got together um so I I, I yearn for that and a good karaoke uh <laughs> session once in a while good rendition of Thunder Road mm -hmm. don't you think though if you have like if you have this ability to to tap into something that you know people could relate to or connect with that y you you could actually like you know you could have an effect on people's lives through your music uh, in a in a positive way uh yes i wrote this song when my dog uh biscuit died and I always, and it was quite... Biscuit um, was a giant Rottweiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biscuit was the best dog ever. Um, and when Biscuit died, I wrote this song 
which I kind of like I like you said I yearned for it to become like a renowned song so that people could relate to just so I could secretly know it's actually written about a dog and <laughs> people can tie their own meaning to um and it had some profound stuff and I, I don't know if I could even recall it um but at one point it said something like um uh or something like uh, I I watched you uh grow from a seed to a tree but it was you who looked over me it was about the the dynamics of you know when you get a puppy you're the one to bring it up but ultimately it's kind of raising you in a sense like people change when they get a pet and um you're there for their entire life they're not there for yours and a lot of people get wrapped up in that whole concept of um that you've looked after this dog and you've fed it every day but really it's it's a symbiotic kind of relationship where you're feeding it, but it's actually feeding you back. And, and the concept of that, anyway, it was in, in the context of the song, it was quite um, profound and it seemed like a bit of a morning ballad about the death of someone. Um, and I would have liked to have seen, seen that one hit the charts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to put it out in the public <laughs> for that to happen. Yeah. So, we met, uh, I, uh, how old? I was, I want to say I was 20 and you were probably 19. 14. 14. I was like Doogie Howser, but of a film school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not sure what 14-year-olds are electing to go to film school unless they had a 3D movie maker. Um, oh, yes. And, uh, it was, can I just say one thing? Um, it was really hard for us to make any films. Do you remember trying to like, capture... Like, uh, D, like D or VHS D, yeah, cameras on like a USB, like it was Firewire, wasn't it? No, no, in my day it was like coaxial and Firewire, and you had to have a version of like an early version of like you didn't even use Premiere, at least I didn't. I didn't capturing. have any software. You'd yeah. have to use separate cap- capture software, re encode it, and then import it. It was a nightmare. Mm. Yeah, I do recall that whole process being a ball like. Yeah, and now you go to effectively. I mean, the resolutions you get on these iPhones are incredible. I I'm, I come from a Nokia thirty three ten era. Um, yeah, I'll show you what the iPhone can do when we finish. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice to see. Yeah. Uh, what was I guess you know what was your? I know you went to TAFE for a year before um, before we went to film school. What was your? I guess what was what was your high schooling like? Were you you know was this kind of where you were really honing? your creative juices or was uh you know what was the kind of path for you from through high school into film school um yeah i was kind of very creative in my high school days i did all like you know short films and stuff um carried it oh jeez i carried around a camcorder for most of the year 10 11 12 um and i recently um went back through all the tapes because they were turning into dust. Did you find anything funny? Uh, I found a lot of things funny. Um, but a lot of it was kind of a high school day. So it was interesting to it was interesting to see like what feels like yesterday and then watch it again and be taken back. And it's like, it is yesterday, but it's it, it was a long time ago now. And just seeing the people and uh, how much you changed as an individual and the kind of things you deal with when you're in high school and such. Um... But yeah, I, I did a lot of filming and uh, little short films and stuff like that. I found a bunch of uh, little short films I made, which are pretty cool. Like they're pretty well done considering the technology we had to do it. And 
lack of you couldn't just go on youtube back then and look up a video tutorial you had to you search the web for people who were kind enough to make you know geo cities web pages and <laughs> dreamweaver back in the geo city days and yeah. they'd, they'd show you like with you know step by step how to edit something or um but yeah i kind of uh kind of did the whole creative thing through uh high school i i'm not the smartest person or i'm not the dumbest person in the world either but i felt the need to to study a lot of the harder subjects um and balance that with a couple of creative ones when in hindsight probably should have done all creative um courses as that's where i excelled um and yeah finished high school and did kind of did tafe uh multimedia design just because that was safe and an emerging industry and probably should have done that in hindsight and um use that to leapfrog into uh film school which was a exceptionally high enter score from what i remember it was in the 90s i think i think i don't remember yeah. I I also got in after, like yeah. my 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 high school score didn't matter because exactly. I went in after yeah. as a mature age student, even though I was like twenty. We were not mature. We were certainly not mature. We were neither students, nor mm. had we aged. No, and not a lot has changed since then. <laughs> I can grow a full beard now. Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. There used to be a bald spot in my chin. Alistair used to have a bald spot in his chin. And he has been admiring photos of his beard um, on this trip mm. um, because it's quite full now, as opposed to, I guess, 10, 12 years ago when we went to... Yeah, 12 years ago we started film school. Yeah, well, that's a while ago. Kind of blows your noodle. Oh, yes. Um, what What are the... I spoke with uh, with with Matilda on this show, but I guess she and I, uh, Matilda Brown, who we went to film school with, mm-hmm. she's the only other person that we went to film school with. I think I've spoken to on the show, aside from Liam, I guess. But he did. He was like an unofficial member of our film school. We're actually just for, for fun fact, uh, like pop up music. Remember that? It was like, can you uh, do yeah. that on a podcast? Do you have like a, a function where I'm you not can going to? But yeah, pop up a fact. Yeah, go on. Here's a fact. Here's a fact for you audience we are in liam's house right now Mm. (laughs) in ireland we are in liam's uh, in liam's house right now in ireland well his family house um and uh i think in the episode that i recorded with liam he uh he said you you should speak to damo on this uh on on the podcast so that's surprised uh, to hear i actually listened to that one um and i was surprised he would say that because i can't i'm not like particularly interesting i haven't like like we we talk about creativity and such, but I haven't really, I haven't really um, uh, you know, gone. I haven't done anything that anyone else you've interviewed. You know, I haven't. I don't know. You lived in LA for five years, working with one of the top rental houses in the world on some of the biggest shows in the yeah, world. I guess that's kind of cool. And you worked your way up there to a fairly high spot. I guess yeah. I guess that's. I guess that's interesting. I mean, you own I'm, property. I've never. I wasn't. There's uh, not most of the people <laughs> who I've spoken to on this show don't own property. I didn't play Spartacus. That's true. I did pitch a. You played with Spartacus. I, I did play with Spartacus, and, and I, to this day, a, I still in a play platonic with Spartacus. Way. <laughs> yeah. um, I did pitch a show, a spin-off, friend of Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> um, Go on. Well, we talked about it. It was kind of like a Muppet Babies <laughs> version. <laughs> Like of Spartacus, um, Wait, so, yeah. so all so all the Spartacus characters were children. 
Yeah. How did they incorporate the sex and gore into that? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, like, it was it was just kind of the pitching phase. Right. I didn't really flesh out all the details. It's like how I pitched the final episode of Girls. Did you watch Girls? No, I didn't do Girls. Well, I won't, like, if anyone's listening, I know the grace period's a year for TV shows. So, no spoilers, but I didn't like the ending of Girls. Um, and uh, I wanted to write my own last episode. And I really wanted to introduce myself as a character just right at the end for a spin-off to kind of float up. <laughs> and you know what it's called? Go on. <laughs> You're not going to guess? <laughs> You're sitting there giggling already. Go on. It's going to star me and like Adam Driver and it was going to be called Boys. God. Anyway, I got <laughs> I got through one draft of that and I thought maybe I didn't think HBO would be too interested in it. <laughs> Mate, if you got the hookups with HBO... Um, I actually, yeah, I, there was one, <laughs> I had one hookup for HBO when I had, when I'd spent my time in LA and, um, I used whatever credit I had with him to complain that Hello Ladies got cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So you could have pitched, uh, brother, boys, boy, yeah. boy, boys or friend of Spartacus yeah, and instead you, you complained about some slightly above average Stephen Merchant <laughs> show that got cancelled. It was a good show. <laughs> it was a good show. So what was what was film school like for you? Uh, I know what it was like for me because I live inside me. But <laughs> what was it like? For, and I guess we did spend a lot of time together. You're about half a drink ahead of me. All right, all right, all right. Um, <laughs> what, what, so what was uh, what was film school like for you? What was film school like for me? Well, it was an interesting experience. I grew up, um, like I said, 45 minutes outside of Melbourne in the eastern suburbs. And then... In a town called Moralbark. Moralbark, for anyone interested. Um, I don't think there's... and I've always wanted to be the notable person of, like, a town. Um, I feel like it wouldn't be too hard to be the notable no, person I don't think it would Moralbark. Um, yeah, on the Wikipedia page, just that, like, notable people. Damien, you know, collected the most stamps or whatever, you know, just anything. Damien complained to the head of HBO that... Girl, that uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, single-handedly... <laughs> uh, Hello, yeah. ladies got cancelled. Um uh, what was it like? Yeah, so it was a bit, little bit of a, a, a an experience going from like the education system out there. Yeah, because uh, I guess this would be your first time, kind of consistently in being in the big smoke, the big smoke that is <laughs> Melbourne, and Chapel Street, and Paran. Because we went to film school in which is a fairly yeah. kind of commercial but kind of hip area. Yeah, yeah, we we studied in Paran, which is a little unorthodox kind of. Uh, place for because a lot of it happens in the Hawthorne campus, which mm. is a, more of a traditional university, and um, more kind of suburban. Yeah, um, we Pran. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a university, but it felt more like a TAFE, I guess. Um, yeah, that no, was cool. It was good to meet like-minded people for a change. I I, I feel that it was the first time I connected with people on a uh, that on a, that that I could relate to a bit more than what I did. Um, when I was um, going through like primary school and high school, I always tended to sort of uh, gravitate to the, the eccentric people, and it was nice to be, um, you know, paired up with an ensemble of crazy characters. What do you what What do you feel like you learned at film school? Um, <laughs> what did I learn from film school? Aside from how to do things on a shoestring budget, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if I learned anything. Um, I mean, I learned a fair. 
I remember there was a point where I got about halfway through where the first half was just having fun and not learning anything. And then once you start to realize uh, it's looming the end and that you need to figure out what happens next. I think it was around the time that we made Shotgun was when we actually started to take things seriously. Yeah, yeah, around that period. And that was about a year and a half in. To yeah. It was a three-year course. And um, I think it was from about then I decided to kind of take it seriously. And that's when I kind of decided I wanted to... I've always made stuff, you know, uh, filmed various things and played the role of director and cinematographer and editor and, you know, all you wear all the hats. And I think that was a point where I kind of, I took a step back and I looked at what everyone was aspiring to do in like a micro Petri dish that is film school and um, figured that that's how it probably is in the real world. If you expand it by times it by a thousand and everyone wanted to be a director and everyone wanted to, you know, I I looked at all those roles and I said, well, okay, I'm not going to, I don't really want to stand in line and be a director. I don't want to, you know, and not a ton of people were looking at shooting and doing cinematography. And I felt, I've always felt that's the most creative thing to do um, because you're effectively, you know, on, within those kind of productions we're doing, that's where you kind of have the most most creativity and you can um, express yourself however. Um, so, yeah, I focused, uh, there was a point where I kind of focused on that side of things and, I started shooting a bunch of things and ruining a bunch of people's um, uh, end of year projects. Yeah, and we worked on film as well, actually, in the second and third year. You shot that Frank Gray short film that we made as yeah, well as... Yeah, um, film, yeah. And Shotgun was Super 16. You think about that, like, and compared to... I mean, I don't know what film schools are doing nowadays, but yeah, like, I couldn't like, imagine that... They still do it on 16 mil for, like, oh, yeah. various modules. They have, you know... Uh, not to bore anyone, but they, the higher end digital cinema cameras, they now, they have Alexas now at the university we went to. Yeah. Um, is Dennis still working there? He is. <laughs> still the gatekeeper <laughs> to the equipment. He is, yes, yes, he is. Still telling people they fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it still happens too, believe it or not. I'm um, sure. But yeah, they, they have now quite high end stuff, but their intakes are insane. We were the, when we, when we studied it, it was 50 people. Were, I think it was less than that, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, whatever it was. Whatever it was. We were only the... It's now triple four times. Really? Now. Yeah, it's, they pucking out. out. So, uh, so what, uh, before I go to after film school, what do you remember about film school? What is, what is, like, what's like a standout memory? I remember... Oh, I remember... This is, okay, this is a little anecdote for you. Are you ready for on. this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, should, should we, should we yeah, pop let's number three? three. <clears throat> oh, man, we're going to have to... We're going to have to probably go get a Guinness after this. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. What are we on? Black Barrel? Yeah. Okay, we're doing a black barrel. I'm gonna try and this one is a Jamison black barrel, as you just said. All right, listen to this, everyone. <clears throat> now, where were we? You were about to tell me a funny anecdote. Oh yeah, there was okay. First day of uni, um, university. Um. Not many people, like everyone's kind of on that. Um, everyone's a little bit sus and a little bit suspicious about everyone and trying to figure out who's who and like, you know, who's the, you know, it's very primal, who's the alpha male, you know, and all this kind of rubbish. And at one point I kind of sensed that 
uh, like I was up a contender for <laughs> for this and for King Primate <laughs> exactly yeah um, for whatever reason you know all you have to do is effectively make a decision like we're gonna get lunch here I was like yeah it's cool it's cool we're gonna get lunch here. Um, I remember at one point I was walking and there was probably about five or six of us I think you may have been there I don't quite recall but you know I was kind of like the big dog and we're walking and you know I was you know strutting my stuff and talking to someone while while walking um and i didn't i actually hadn't noticed ex- like protruding from the ground further up i guess to stop cars driving in they had these like shark fin barriers that, but protruded from the ground probably about like a meter high um quite thin but like literally like a shark fin and um i strutted right into that <laughs> right into my groin <laughs> and it was like at that point, I realized I'd lost them. Like, they kind of looked at me and, like, my, I knew my reaction kind of really could save, make make or break, you know, where I came and I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't um, power through that one. <laughs> but I managed to do what I could. But I remember uh, of that group, like, you know, it would have been probably eight people in total. About six of them had to go to Paran Station and we, um, so I, so I managed, I think I managed to recover a little bit since then and, like, I probably dropped down to you know, um, beta male, <laughs> is that, a, I guess it is. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I remember we went up to the train station and they're quite high platforms, um, to the ground and you can either, back in those days, there weren't as many gates as there are now. So you could effectively jump up on a platform, um, as opposed to walking all the way around, around and going through the, um, turnstile and, uh, what a time to be alive. What a time. What a time. Things have changed. Gentrification, man. Mm. Um, yeah, so we, we like everyone was kind of cool. Um, and uh, I remember I was with Ben Plant. Remember Ben? Mm. Now very successful. He should get him on his podcast. Miami Horror. Miami Horror, if anyone's heard of that yeah. um, cool band. Anyway, so he, he, he left up on a platform, so I followed suit. And split my pants, uh, <laughs> I think, from, like, taint to, like, completely... From poo hole to goo hole. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, from that day forward, I was just a mere commoner in the hierarchy right. of uh, university. Tried that's the most memorable, that yeah. My, that's funny. My most memorable thing just happened on day one. Yeah. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> so... When you when we came out of film school, you got a job working for a rental company in Australia called Lemac, um, who is still one of the. Well, actually, well, prior to that, I I was fortunate enough that I got that on the back end, kind of of um, they. So in so those anyone who was following along with this banter um, disjointed uh, time sequence. Disjointed time sequence. Um, when they make films or productions that are typically um, government funded, I guess, they have um, roles for attachment roles where you can get on board um, if you're a student or aspiring to get an industry. And they will, it's effectively like an unpaid intern role. And I got that on this film, which I don't know if it ever got released. Um, I think it got released, but it was a straight to like bargain bin um, but it had a pretty decent cast. It had like Miranda Otto, Guy Pierce, and oh, what's the guy from Jurassic Park? Sam Neill. Sam Neill. That's right. I remember this. Yeah. I remember. I remember coming and meeting you for the rap party, and Sam Neill was dancing on the table or something. Yeah, yeah. He was out of control. Yeah. 
Um, good, good guy, but out of control. Mm. Um, he does that meat dance. Remember those commercials where he, like, he he would do the uh, PSAs for oh, yeah, lamb, yeah. and he yeah. would dance. Yeah. That's how he dances. It's not like <laughs> lamb induced. Yeah, right, right. So they didn't feed him a whole lot of lamb and go now dance, Sam. That no. was just, that was just him. Um, but yeah, I got so I got a taste into the camera department. I got a camera attachment role, which is basically operating the video split. So when um, every they shot on thirty five mil film, so every time they record. Every time they shoot, um, the output of that, of the little camera inside the big camera would um, go to a little viewing monitor and I was in charge of managing it so they can play back shots. Um, so I did that. Now um, someone get paid a lot of money to do that job. Sorry? Now people get paid a lot of money oh, to yeah, do DITs, that job. Oh yeah, DITs, yeah. I got paid nothing on that. And yeah, I did that through winter for like, would have been felt like a year but it was probably about a month <laughs> and um that's kind of how i kind of i transitioned from well i was still in film school at the time but i transitioned into like i guess working yeah. industry wise and from the back end of that yeah i worked for a uh, an organization in melbourne uh that would provide those cameras and lenses to and other equipment to productions mm. And then from there, you you know you worked for them for a few years and and did a trip to LA actually with aforementioned friend Liam. Yeah, um, me and Liam. I was there when oh, I got some good stuff. Go on. Um, oh, I don't want to mention the Doritos thing, do I? I think it's on the internet. It is so. on the internet. Okay. Um, yeah. So continue. No, you continue. No, you, you, you set it up for me. Yeah, I but you but you, but, but you cut me off with <laughs> the fact that you had something good to say. All right, 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 right. Well, I got nothing good to say, so continue. Oh, all right. Uh, you you did a trip with Liam in Los Angeles. Well, the trip. Yeah, yeah. That's the one where he had, he did the Doritos thing, right? Well, that's what I was. That's what I was getting to. Um, where he did the Doritos okay. thing. Um, no, like he's a big. You know, he's a big movie star now, doing various films with Antonio Banderas. Yeah. Um, ben Kingsley, um, oh, the guy from Twilight. <laughs> he did another, What was that film he did with him? He did the Hercules film uh, with Callan uh, Cal- Cal- Lutz. Lutz. Yeah, um, very nice guy, mind you. Oh yeah, <laughs> went to a, his Halloween party. Right <laughs> when I was in LA with Liam, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, um, Doritos commercial. Um, so he. Um, so Liam, you got to give it to him. Like no one's like he's the hardest working individual ever. Very inspiring Absolutely. person. So Liam and I lived together back in Melbourne, and um, he was planning a trip to LA um, to do some uh, acting classes. I think it was to do groundwork, wasn't it? To like get try and get a manager and yeah, yeah. But he was doing classes and okay. and, and whatnot. And yeah, and and, and it's, it, you just, you just got to like understand how hard it's got to be to go there and like everyone's trying to get in you know Mm. so a lot of there's a lot of people there trying to um um you know make a coin how they can and you know so he he was he did a bunch of like classes and um uh workshops and and one of the things he did was that they would do like i guess open cast calls on certain things and he um did a test thing for a Doritos commercial and it's basically him he he was told to dance eating a bag of Doritos in front of a green screen and then <laughs> I feel like a year later it surfaced on YouTube <laughs> when you, and then at the height of these like um, 
Wait, his audition tape surfaced. Well, it's it, I don't I don't know if they used it or not, but it, it was put on YouTube. Right. Um, <laughs> it was uploaded, and it's him dancing, and it's a funny. All you have to type, type in Liam McIntyre Doritos, and it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful. You've the just choice totally of music, him under the bus. <laughs> the choice of music <laughs> and the visuals are just fantastic. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's and and when he was like during the um uh casting of him getting into Spartacus it, it jumped up i think from like maybe 10 views to like 10,000 views and it, it it you can look it up too there's like fan-made versions of that where people like fans of the show have recreated it to the music <laughs> and they dress as Spartacus eating bags of Doritos <laughs> dancing that's amazing um yeah it's fantastic um yeah so yeah what were you? What were you? Well, what at? was so? What was <laughs> what was LA like for you? You know, we were talking about before how you going to film school was like the you know the first kind of consistent time for you in the big smoke. Actually, mm. I know that you and I went to Sydney together in two thousand and six, and it was the first time you'd been on a plane. <laughs> so this is the first. It's time the first that... time I saw running water when I got to Sydney too, right. and, and, and electricity. I thought you were going to say when you got to Paran. Um, <laughs> What was what was it like for you, you know, on this first kind of overseas trip? I know you and I, we actually ended up meeting on that trip in New York because um, Shotgun was playing at a festival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A film got into a... Sh- you submitted it into a festival. Yeah, the New York Independent Film Festival. That was... That's a kind of... If you reflect on that for a minute, that's kind of cool. Like we got Yeah, to we watched see... our film play in Manhattan. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was, was some kind of cool. really awful... It was, it was before some really awful feature film from memory. Oh, uh, yeah. Hopefully none of those people will be listening to this. I don't even. I just remember they were Italian. I don't know why that's <laughs> they were, significant. They're from the they were UK, like, man. Like they live around a corner from you now, probably. No, 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 no. That was another film that we went and saw. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't say that film was terrible. No, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> well, I don't remember. Oh, that's right. They did like a bunch of it was like a short gangster. Films. No, no, no. Our, it was our film, and then there was like some kind of because our film was like Shotgun. Anyone who's listening can go and watch it on YouTube. Um, but. Uh, it was like our film was like the f- the sort of preamble, and then there was like some really a- very average kind of Italian American gangster uh, yeah. style film, which I'm pretty sure I've we erased that left. one from my memory. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, actually, I interviewed Scott Caulfield. Remember him? We yeah, yeah, him. yeah. Remember he got hit by a taxi? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke about that with him on the podcast. <laughs> He's doing all right now. He's like a he's producing some pretty yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. like like he did a feature film or something recently. Yeah, with or... uh, with Rachel Griffiths and um, uh, Jack Thompson. Yeah, um, right. Is uh, I just remember like I, I think what it's if there's any diehard fans, feel free to just skip forward here. But from what I remember, of getting hit by a taxi. He was uh, intoxicated or something on the street, and he was he he walked he was walking alongside a car, and a taxi kind of like rubbed up against him and, <laughs> and caused it him to kind of like a is it what's it in ballet a pirouette like when they when you spin around or he, know, he kind like of was forced a, to do a beret? <laughs> I don't know I don't, so he kind of did a bit of a spin while the car he was caught in between this car and the way he described it he just had a gleeful look on his face as he did it like yeah. it was a full body massage um yeah. and, that, and I think that happened right before the I think it was right after we were right I, I feel like we were on our way to a bar <laughs> To get to get further intoxicated. So, what was it like for you to to go to LA? Did you even like consider the fact that this was going to be somewhere where you'd live? Oh, not at all. No, it was a terrible experience. I remember getting to LA, um, 
first of all, LAX is um, a horrible, horrible airport. Like you, the second you get out, you you just hit by the polluted air, and then people soliciting, trying to ask for donations, and then um, people trying to get you in the cabs and stuff like. That. It's a very uh, overwhelming experience when you've just spent, you know. 17 hours in a, yeah, in a tin can. Um, yeah, so you get sped out the other end and you're in, you know, the very, like, southern LA where LAX is. And um, I remember I'm, I flew there solo, but I met Liam and a few other people um, there. And we went and picked up our rental car. And Liam, would, he's a very confident fellow. And I remember him saying, like, yeah, yeah, I know how to... Um, I can drive on the, you know, the right-hand side of the road, Australia, driving on the left. Um, he convinced me by saying he's been practicing on GTA 4. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, he does play a lot of GTA 4. <laughs> I think he knows what he's doing. And I remember we, we went to the seediest car rental place. Um, it was like, having had now lived there, I would not have gone to any of these places, but we but did. Wasn't because... it like a really dodgy area, wasn't it? Well, it's all like you've got, like, it's not, it's it's much nicer than it once was, but... But that whole surrounding area of the airport is quite... It's not the nicest area in the world. And I remember we got in the car and he he went to pull onto the road. And the first thing he did was um, he went to indicate and the windscreen wipers just started going. <laughs> and I knew at that point, I'm like, he, this, he's been talking smack. He's been using his acting <laughs> glasses against me. Um, but we got there. There was a funny point where we were... Uh, later on in the trip, we were uh, stopped at the lights... And um, it was kind of, uh, it doesn't matter where we are actually, but we, I remember we stopped at the lights and me, I was on the front seat, Liam was driving and we were in a heated discussion. We we're talking about something and Mark, the guy we were traveling with, was in the middle of the back seat and me and Liam are just chatting, chatting and, and we hear in the background Mark saying, um, guys, and we're like, yeah, we keep chatting. The light's red, you know, not a worry in the world. It's quite late at night. He goes, guys, guys. And we're like, you know, shut up, shut up. You know, one second, we're, we're chatting. And he just goes, guys, we're on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> and we were parked on the wrong side of the road of the lights, um, which was, yeah, which was an interesting experience. But that was Liam driving. Um, he's quite good at it now. Um, but yeah, so you, your question is, how did I find it? And did I think I'd live there? And I didn't, I remember not, I remember not liking it at all. It was quite dirty and, when you arrive, we we had that experience at the Did airport. Did you just go just because it was something to do? Uh, y- yeah, because I, I was living with Liam at the time in Melbourne, and he'd been planning this trip for months and months. And um, he'd said to me, "Why don't you come along?" And I, it was a bit of a, uh, I guess, with my the, the life I'd lived lived up to that point, it's quite far out and extraordinary to do something like that it's not the norm so i didn't really consider it um but i thought that um yeah he kind of convinced me hey check it out check it out check it out and i ended up getting it going down to like flight center or somewhere like that getting a quote and it was quite cheap so i just booked it like similar to this trip we're on right now like two three weeks in advance or a couple weeks it was that much yeah yeah i kind of just i kind of just did it on a whim Um, but I remember we pulled in, we landed, we had that experience at the airport and then driving in the, the route we took, we went down, um, kind of like Sepulveda, which goes 
down past all uh, we went past all like the uh oil rigs you know that are mining what oil they have left in that city <laughs> and then just going through just quite seedy areas or at least what seemed to be quite seedy areas at the time and then we stayed in hollywood like hollywood and vine on that intersection yeah quite so i remember my first day was quite tough um but um but yeah no like it all perked up from there i ended up like they were quite busy doing their acting classes so i was left to my own devices um i was fortunate enough to have found like a cool local that showed me around and you know i got got to experience kind of the city as a as a local and that and that started to plant a couple of seeds in my mind starting to realize what it might be like to live a life in a city i i didn't explore that city as a tourist i got to exp- kind of explore it as someone who lives there and doing more of the um what locals would do as opposed to what tourists would do um so it went from being a pretty bad experience to an okay experience, but I think those seeds um, were planted at that point. So when so you came back to Australia, I guess this is sort of towards the end of 2009, and you moved to LA, I guess, at the beginning of 2011. So I guess at what point did this job opportunity present itself? And when and what was the was there even a decision to be made or was it just like, yeah, I'm going to do it? Well, I think it's quite fitting that we're three miniature bottles in because I'm going to get I'm going to I'm going to drop some insightful shit. Yeah, go on. Are you ready for this? Yeah, let's get Um, Jamison deep. (laughs) We're going to get we're going to get Jamison deep. Yeah, right. Jammed into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. Um, I have now like having had the experiences I've had, I, I kind of feel that once you make an emotional decision i guess in that point like i said the seeds was was sown at that point um any opportunities that may lead to that conclusion that you kind of want to do suddenly become visible once you've made that decision um so i kind of look at it in that sliding doors kind of way there's a version of me that probably if i hadn't concluded that, that there's something to be gained from living there or existing there versus the, the version that, that ended up doing it and that I believe in the multiverse. So in that universe, um, suddenly any opportunity that may lead me to that um, decision was, was apparent. So I went back to working in the Australian film industry and uh, I'm, I was fortunate enough to um, sort of had, you know, be exposed to that network and, and whatnot. And one of the, um, they had the company I had worked for in Melbourne had multiple locations in different cities. And one of the, uh, guys that worked in the Sydney office was an American guy and he just disappeared one day and I asked, where did he go? And, you know, because I was sort of, um, I knew he was American. I knew he was going back to America, but I kind of asked, where did he go? You know? And, it was it was kind of like an avenue that opened up and I decided to explore it and it turned out he went and worked for this rental company, similar company, but in Hollywood, effectively in LA. And um, when I learned that, I ended up reaching out to him and blah, 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 blah. took a couple of months, but I ended up effectively being offered a job and I decided to move over there. It was kind of an interesting decision where I it was so far out and radical that I'm like, all right, well, the opportunities come up. I might as well 
check it out. You know, I'll give it six months and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and um, yeah, it went longer than six months. Yeah. What was the hardest thing about moving to Los Angeles? Everything. I, I, <laughs> everything. <laughs> like it was a very difficult, I wanted to throw in the towel. I made a pact with myself and I didn't want to throw in the towel until I didn't want to throw in the towel, if that makes sense. Like I, it was so easy to quit initially because it's tough. Like you don't really know anyone there. Um, you've got to like, you get a, like, you got to get a social security number. You have to open up a bank. You have to get a phone. You can't get a, you can't get on, you just can't go on a plan like you would in your home country because you don't have a credit history and I had to find an apartment and I had to, you know, you have to start from, you literally start from scratch. Um, and I didn't really have a network to their existing to allow me to get into it. So that was all really hard. Like I drove a rental car for the first, oh geez, probably the first like month and a half, two months. And that was expensive. And finding a car, like in Australia, you just, you know, you can get a road worthy with a car. That's how you know it's legit. They don't have that system over there, you know, so you don't know what you're getting and there's a thing called Craigslist, which is a very dangerous place to, to loiter. It's the dark web of, um, <laughs> <Second> <laughs> the <United> goods. States. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, everything was hard and, and like, that's just the adjustments and like getting used to their system. The whole other side is like socially meeting people. Then the other side is like work. Like I had to learn how the system worked there. The film industry is completely different to to Australia. Um, so yeah, everything was hard. What? what how's it different? Uh, which the, the film, how industry. film industry? Yeah, just a way. Like uh, so, if a film production was to um, so to give a bit of context when. Uh, when films are made, um, cameras historically have been very expensive, especially film cameras back in the day. So you wouldn't, so production companies and directors and they don't own the equipment because it's a too expensive to have. And B it's, it evolves so much that by the time you have the latest tool camera or lens, it's probably going to be superseded by something else. Or maybe your next production calls for a different type of camera or a different type of lens. So therein lies the industry that um, that basically purchases all that equipment or has it and modifies it and has all those selective tools that people would effectively rent or hire. Um, so the way it works, I guess, in Melbourne is that like I, really anyone would would approach a um any rental house down in melbourne uh, pick up the gear and be on their way whereas over there it's a little different i i worked the place i worked for in the united states was a boutique kind of place it, it only dealt in high-end cinema so what were some of the things that you worked on um the way uh, okay so when i landed i didn't realize it at the time but um i was given a lot of kind of high profile clients for that company. They were quite large, they were a large company. Even when I arrived at large, but they were quite small compared to other companies that existed. So, um, when I started, I, the first projects I was given, I was given three, I was given, um, house MD, 
Uh, so I did about three seasons with that before it finished. Um, I was given shame, the US version of Shameless and I was given uh, The Middle, which I don't think really got broadcast in Australia. It's kind of like a... It's not to be confused with Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> um, but and when I say I was given those jobs, uh, they were... Uh, I guess long form TV shows, which um, would were getting their equipment through this company, and my job was to like account manage those jobs and make sure those jobs were good, uh, whatever changes they needed, uh, make sure the cinematographer was happy and the crew, and was the middleman between the company that I work for and the production company. So I kind of was that middleman that looked after it. I didn't really have... When I was in Melbourne, I was very hands-on with equipment. I was with this company in LA for about six, five and a bit years, um, all of which I was very much just a people person there, not not a um, not really hands-on with the equipment. And, um, uh, yeah, the previous question I didn't, don't think I actually finished answering, but... Um, but yeah, that's pretty much what the, what I did there in a nutshell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the previous question was was about I guess the differences between Australian. And oh American. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's what I was I was answering. Um, well, I guess as a kind of extension of that as well, what, what what from your experience, how do you feel that we could maybe improve our industry? Well, uh, it's very it's it's completely different. Um, here it's very loose. Um, if the camera crew, let's say, I assume you don't mean Ireland. When you <laughs> no. say here, oh uh, yeah, yeah. Mentally, I'm I'm in Melbourne right now. I've I've three Jamisons deep. Um, so uh, it's hard to like. I, I want to give you like a, a sound bite of how it's different, but it's hard to condense. But I'll attempt. Mate, this is long form fucking podcasting yeah, ramble. I know. I know. I'm. If anyone is still with us right now, whatever. We're, we're seventy minutes in now. 70? Yeah. Far out. Um, so again, <laughs> No one's listening anymore. Yeah, I know. Well, anyone who's managed to... Maybe into like a two-parter. Was there a cliffhanger at some point? No. You know who's listening? Phil's listening. Yeah, Phil, Phil, Phil is definitely listening. <laughs> Hi, <Not> Phil. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, the way it's different... Uh, <laughs> Having a good laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way that it's different. So in 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 Melbourne, uh, when you work in the film industry, it's kind of there's no there's no superstructure. If you want to be a cinematographer, like which is the cinematographer is a boss of the camera department. That's the person who collaborates with the director and says uh, the director says this is my vision, and it's up to the cinematographer to effectively create. And um, everyone creates the vision of a director. Um, in Australia, it's it's kind of if you want to be a cinematographer, there's you can you can get about that any way you really please. You you have to you can work in a rental house like I did. That's why I worked in a rental house. I wanted to be a cinematographer, and you you gain an understanding understanding the equipment, build a network, go out and start shooting effectively. If you can afford to, um, you know, uh, get started and, and start shooting and do it for free for a while. Um, you can, I'm simplifying it. And so I, I'm sorry if I'm offending any, uh, any active cinematographers, but, but it's, it's, it's really, it's really great place to be a cinematographer in Australia. 
you can be a camera assistant. You can go through the ranks really quickly in Australia just because it's not a ton of... Uh, I, again, I feel like I'm undermining the industry, but there's, it's, it's a different it, system. It's a dis- it's very loose. Like you can, whereas in America, and I was explaining, we were chatting earlier, um, it's heavily unionized. So, um, for example, the biggest adjustment for me was when I noticed that I, I think I did some commercial, um, and it, it, the the crew came in and they prepped the equipment. Everyone preps the equipment beforehand to make sure it all works. You know, they calibrate the camera, the lenses, make sure that their focus um, equipment is working with the lens. Just make, you, you iron out all the bugs because you can configure a camera package. Is it handheld? Is it going to be on a dolly? Is it going to be on sticks? Or, you know, there's so many configurations that are, that every shoot is different. So there's a day dedicated to um, configuring the camera. Um, and I noticed that the crew would come in and, and prep the camera and they would just leave. And I'm used to when I was in Australia that, that the camera crew would pack it in their cars and drive off. Um, and I remember having to have it be explained to me that no, 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 the, the crew have gone now. Now the drivers will come. So if you're familiar with the Teamsters in, in America, Teamsters are, are effectively the guys that drive. They do trucking. They do all of the cargo kind of stuff. Like when the ships dock and the things come off and they drive, they, it's all under the, they're all Teamsters. Um, and on, and they also work within the film industry. So there's a whole subsection of the film industry, which is just the driving where they will pick up all the equipment from the various places, props, um, lighting, you know, camera, um, and then when you go to set, if you go to set and the base camp is located, so the base camp being where uh, production, where the meeting point for all the crew is, uh, it might be in a location uh, A, was where the base camp is, but where the actual filming is taking place could be up to you know a kilometer or a mile away. Um, so the teamsters are the guys that drive little shuttle trucks that will drive people. So it's kind of a really really um departmentalized system in america you have a structure to everything if you want to be a director there's a path you can take if you want to be a cinematographer you start as you know a utilities person the person who did what i did on that sam neill thing that that would have been a a role um where you effectively wrangle the cables and set up monitors and stuff like that and then if you excel at that you get bumped up you become the second camera assistant and they're the people who hold the slate in front of the camera and, you know, do all the administrative kind of stuff, you know, we'll write all the camera sheets and reports, um, log what takes it was and work with a script supervisor. And if you excel at that, then you can become the focus puller, the person who um, makes sure the shots are in focus and changes the lenses. And if you excel at that, then you become the camera operator. You excel at that, then you can become a cinematographer. Each one of those steps can be a career for, for people. Um, and because it's heavily unionized, you know, you have to follow all the regulations and everything must, it's a, it's an industry there. It's an export. Whereas I think in Australia, it's a little bit different. It's a lot more loose and, uh, there's none of everything I just explained as far as I'm aware, doesn't really exist. All those roles exist, but 
the hierarchy of how you leapfrog from one to another seems to be a bit more um, not as kind of you know uh, contractually written on paper. It's not as it's not as militant, I think, as well. It's, there's not that kind of. Um, I don't know, my experience being in London and working in the Hollywood system in London, uh, which, you know, is only, you know, a, a fifth of your experience, but there's there's like, there's that really quite militant hierarchy that you kind of obey. Whereas in Australia, it sort of feels like, you know, like there are guys who went to Swinburne a couple of years after us who were the DP on commercials and yeah, cinematographer well, and commercials yeah, so, and, and series within a few years of finishing film school. So I, I, okay. So when I left Melbourne, I was gone for about three, uh, sorry, five and a bit years. And I, I left and there were people who were like starting at the kind of the bottom and after five years, which is a short amount of time for anyone's career, I guess. Um, they're like at the, they're, they're shooting they're cinematog- they're known as cinematographers they're winning awards they're you know um whereas the way it worked in hollywood that i saw you will start at you know you can start even in utility at 19 and then you're it's gonna your, take you a lot longer than yeah five years. i mean you're in your your late 20s and you may be a second and then you're in your thirties to forties and you're doing your first slash operating maybe. And yeah. then, so you, you're like a lot of people who, if they, who follow that militant, as you said it, um, if you follow that system, you're not, you're shooting when you're like 40 or 50, mm. you're a cinematographer when you're 40, 50. Whereas I know people who are my age and have been shooting for years now. Well, they're, yeah. 30, so shooting since I was, so it's a good way to expedite your career working in Melbourne. And, um, and I'll, without naming names, I guess, but I've, uh, I had, I've got some, I heard some very, some firsthand stories of people in Hollywood working with Australian cinematographers and having some frustration because they, they don't understand what it takes to um, be an assistant. You know, so people who are working, who are assisting Australian cinematographers who, um, who make it very clear that those people didn't earn their stripes, so to speak. Like, mm. and it's not, it's not an ego thing. It's not like they didn't do this. They didn't do ABC. Uh, then why aren't they like, and how can, how dare they consider themselves a D, you know, but it's more of an immaturity thing. Like they, they've not in all cases, but in some cases they said that, um, you know, that they're very, they can be a little bit immature and not, um, and be a little impatient because they don't understand what it takes um, to do the minutiae details. You know, they get a little frustrated. Yeah, I think, and I think it's important. I mean, uh, you know, we, you and I have both worked, I guess, now in the film industry in, I was going to say in, in inverted commas, but not really for almost 10 years now. And in one way or another, you know, we've we've both kind of worked our way up through whatever channels that may be, paid our dues, done our kind of time. You kind of look, I look back at film school and go, well, film school was like kindergarten in terms of an education spectrum. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, okay, so I've done kindergarten. Now I've done 10 years. Now I feel like I'm actually starting to actually live a creative life uh, and, and, and actually seeing 
the, the fruits of, you know, the last sort of 10 years of working and trial and error and thinking that I was, you know, sitting on your ego or thinking that I was better than I was or kind of really organically arriving at, at, a, at a point of creativity. Oh, that's so profound. I'm at like finger painting stage. <laughs> <laughs> You're still doing the pottery. I'm doing that thing where you cut the potato and you make a stencil and right. you stamp it. What was that thing you said you did with your mum when you were... that I didn't know what it was? <laughs> Let's not get into that. Right. <laughs> um, should we should we crack the final yeah, one? Yeah, that's the final one. Yeah. This is like, it's like an, it's got a structure to it. We're in act four. Yeah, this is act four. What happens um, in act four? We've talked about the career. This everyone, is. everyone turns it off in act four. Um, <laughs> this is, this is Jamison Crested. No, I'm not even reading them anymore. Right. We're beyond the reading phase. <clears throat> so when we do the part four of this interview. Yeah. Because um, it's going to be split into like four chapters i imagine like this is going to go over four <laughs> you're, like, not get, you're not getting four weeks of my podcast mate yeah. okay here we go slauncher slauncher at the guinness uh mm, quite good. the guinness um they call it the guinness storehouse i'm not sure why they do that why they call it the storehouse mm. it wasn't part of a tour um, but basically in Dublin, they have a, a brewery there where they've set up a nice little, um, walking, you know, self-guided walking tour of the Guinness factory. And you can see how they, their process, they did it through some great visual, uh, visuals and videos and whatnot. Um, but they explained to us one thing they said in, in, in Ireland, you say salon chair. And the way to remember it is to say, it's a long chair. And that's what I took away from it. That's how I remember it. It's a long chair. Yeah, it's a long chair. <laughs> so why did you move back to Australia? And let's not like kind of beat around the bush here because we're, we're, we're 80 <sighs> minutes in. We're all, we're all really good friends now. I don't, and I don't mean like you moved back because you achieved what you wanted to achieve i mean like on a philosophical level why did you move back to australia from los angeles you're asking a deep questions now i see what you do you look at me up yeah you look at me up and you ask me the hard question that's right um why did i move back to australia so i've I'd, I'd a phenomenal time in la it was great mentally there's still a part of me that lives there um and will be there for a while um it was tough to 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 move there and it was very gratifying to transition from that into living there um la is a very hard place to live um it has its ups it has has its, it's it's fascinating the the population of australia i think 22 million or something to to that effect um and the population of america is north america is like uh, 322 or something like that so in LA alone surrounding LA uh, is 17 million the last time I googled it um, so you basically got more or less like a lot of Australia cramped into one little region yeah yet it's the most at times it could be the most isolating place in the world yeah I, I for a long time I felt like I was in 
exile, which is exactly, which was great. That's kind of what I needed at that time and it was good. Um, but it can be a tough place to, to live. It's a very superficial city. Everyone who goes to LA tends to be running from their own problems. It, 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 you, you go to LA if you want to be a, be in the movie industry, if you want to be a model, if you want to be a singer, if you, it's all very superficial. Professional waiter. Professional waiter. It's a, if you, if you have a superficial aspiration in the United States, the chances are your home. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> those, those jobs as superficial aspirations is debatable. Yeah. Look, I, again, I'm for Jamison's deep. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm not trying to look, I'm, I'm part of the problem of this little scenario that I'm explaining. I th- but I, th- I think, I think what you're saying is people, people that people go there perhaps with the wrong intention. You're, you're, I think what you're saying is people go there with the idea that they're going to become famous from going there. Exactly. It's not, it's not that the jobs of being a model or an actor or a filmmaker are superficial, inherently superficial. No, no, superficial. no, not at all. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not, not what I'm getting at. But I'm, what I'm saying is, like, it tends to be, like... It attracts fame mongers. Exactly. So you've got, like, as someone who's spent not a ton of time there, but a good chunk of time there, I've met some really awesome people. Yeah. I've also, and, and a smaller percentage of that have been terrible people that I've met <laughs> there, too. And they're the ones yeah, I'm, you'll I'm meet talking terrible about. People yeah, everywhere. And look, it is an honor. It's as admirable as any other career, but it 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 tends to attract a lot of people there who you know, um, and maybe going there for the wrong reasons. Um, well, look, we everyone wants validation, and, totally. And for some reason, being a successful person in the arts and being known for success in the arts seems to be like people perceive it as a shortcut to getting that validation. And I mean, on a subconscious level, this is like we're getting into it now but like i want to get deep this is what i wanted to get to we start we should start it from here yeah no i think that's a bad idea part two there's no no part two previously on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i think that you know there there is a, a preconceived idea for some people who get into acting or filmmaking or modeling or dancing or these performative arts where you can achieve a level of fame and now we've got reality TV as well, where it's like, this is like a shortcut into getting the validation that I didn't get from my parents or that I didn't get from my friends or whatever yeah. it is. And I, I, yeah, and I, if anything, just because I said it very flippantly, because it's in, we're, we're, this is a very intimate environment where it's us talking and we know each other. Yeah. But just to clarify on what I say, like, even like, like I said, I, I originally, first time I went to LA was with, uh, three other actors and none of those actors were going there for necessarily for superficial reasons but it was a very pure and it's they something they believe in something they're passionate about and they're the good people and they're the ones that you want to meet fortunately you have a lot of people who are exploiting the um preconceived notion that is la and are, are looking to fast track yeah and take shortcuts and and, and it gets a little bit difficult because it can be a bit of a hard, that can be a hard place to um, exist within. Um, I was there long enough to um, find enough circles to get away from it, but you still see it. Um, so one of the reasons why, to answer your question, why I wanted to leave was because I just long-term, I didn't want to become one of those people. Um, I'd happily move back there tomorrow. Um, but that's only like, you know, if you were to split up the, you can't, there's no one reason why I moved back that's split up into a number, a number of reasons. 
another reason was because I never intended on staying any longer than I did. I mean, I planned on going for six months and if it, that went well, I'd go for a year, you know, that year turned into two years, it turned into three years. So I, I kind of felt a sense of, I felt like I kind of abandoned Australia in a sense. I needed to go there. It fulfilled whatever development, uh, uh, you know, it expedites it. I, I, I encourage anyone who wants to go overseas to live, to do it, because it does help expedite whatever it is you want to try and figure out. Um, and I kind of left Melbourne, Australia, and I wanted to go back and tie up any loose ends that I may have had. Um, give it another shot. So that was another reason. Um, another uh, another reason on top of that was I. It would have been nice to be an adult and, you know, uh, put the last five years of my life to good use and try and invest back into a very difficult housing market back in Melbourne. Um, and obviously family, friends, and whatnot. So. I felt that I, I was very fortunate. I got, I was very, it was very easy for me. It was great timing, right place, right time. I, it was quite easy for me to get there. Um, so I kind of left knowing that if I left on good terms too, with my employer, best employer I'll ever had, ever have. And, um, I left on good terms. I knew I could always return to some degree. It wouldn't be easy, but I could do it. Um, we had a, shift in politics in america during that time so it felt like a good time to get out um what else um yeah just a number of reasons to just kind of you just wanted to move into another phase of your life and i think that this is probably the biggest reason um i think it's good to as you know i'm a big seinfeld fan and they went out on any seinfeld references sorry and you haven't made any no no but i even set you up with the yearning but they they went out on a high. I think it's important to to leave a party before the house lights turn on, you know? Like, hey, where's Demo? <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, man. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, what's Demo up to now? Like, you yeah. disappear before, like, people start question, questioning. You're like, oh, man, he must be up to some adventure right now, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, you say this, but then when it comes to jokes... which is something that you said you're most comfortable with in your creativity you will flog a dead horse (laughs) i'd not be known to flog the horse um (laughs) but i I think it's good to i think it's good to like intended i think it's good to you know end before the house lights turn on like it's good to yeah not overstay your welcome i agree i think it's also good like so that in itself is is something worth like dwelling on for a second um I felt if I stayed any longer, I would a become potentially become jaded, um, become an LA type, and I could very easily um, just not like the city. I, I've, I've so many people that I knew there um, that were beginning to resent the city, and I just didn't want to be. I, I wanted to be. I, I chose to move there. I didn't want it to be a bad experience. And the other reason is I think it, it it's good to bookend. Like an experience isn't an ex like it's like a sale isn't complete until payment is paid. You know what I mean? Like it needs to be bookended. Goods are given, payment is uh, received. It's bookended, transaction done. Um, I felt that I needed to bookend the experience. I arrived, 
and I can't reflect on it until I, it ends, you know, and now I can reflect on it quite fondly. Um, yeah, so I felt, so it, like I said, it's no one reason, but it's a, a number of reasons which amount to something. What do you think it, uh, it, it, it takes? Um, Sorry, I got to time out for a second. So I'm not going to edit it. Fuck it. If anyone's <laughs> listening this, this long, which, um, I, which I really hope everyone is because, uh, you know. My journey, man. It's this Damien's is my journey. This is Damien's memoir. This is about as close to a ghost writing memoir as you're ever going to get. Um, the, the the final decision to leave was in line with what I just said about book ending. Um, career wise, the comp the company I was very fortunate to have worked for, which is Keslo Camera, if anyone listening, um, best employees in the world. Um, very. Um, I'm pretty sure you said that about your other employees as well. Yeah, I say it about every. Well, I, I say that I, I've been I've had a good run. Yeah. But this one I really mean like they they were very like, as far as leadership goes, they were a uh, an organization that very much looked after the staff, mm. um, in order to have the staff look after the clientele, which I think like going forward every and any business should adopt this model because, um, the best way to have uh, like efficient stuff it's about it's, the culture yeah oh, the amazing. culture that you create. yeah amazing culture um yeah. but um yeah no it was it was good like like it, it that company it, it grew um exponentially so we went from working on some like i said it was quite large productions we we're working on initially but it, it grew quite significantly like we we've like i was fortunate to be involved with some very large productions um yeah, like TV, but then we moved quite heavily into feature film and they're, they're quite a dominant force in the Hollywood system now. Um, and, and and I felt that it was my time to kind of move on. Um, I, I'd seen that transition and um, uh, it, I was a recipient of their... Ex, expen, like my, develop, my progress in the company was a direct... Um, result of their exponential growth and their success um and i felt i uh i rode those coattails uh for, for as long as i could and i had a good journey and it was time to 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 give something else a, a bash so what's been the the key for you in creating and sustaining a, a, a creative life because simultaneous to all of this you know stuff that we've been talking about in the, the kind of second half is the stuff that was happening in the first half with all this music that you've been creating. You know, you've kind of found a way to subsidize your creativity with another source of creativity. Mm. So what for you is the kind of the, the kind of key to making all that work? Yeah, well, it's actually interesting because I, even though I was a little bit creative and I did a fair bit of music while I was during that period in my life, um, I, I was kind of, I think, I guess this could be another reason why I made my decision is because I was sort of starved of that creativity. I wasn't doing, I was actually quite uh, career focused. And, um, since I have returned, my creativity has gone up tenfold to what it ever has been. Um, so as far as vice, I was distracted during that whole time I was focused on 
you know, assimilating in a different world, meeting people, experiencing things. I experienced some amazing things while I was there. It was great to have, after living there for about two to three years, I think by that stage, Liam had wrapped production in New Zealand um, and he actually moved to LA. So after like two or three years of kind of doing it on my own, I had a very close friend just you know move around a corner you know he literally moved like you know a five ten minute walk from where i lived when he first moved there um what advice would you give to like let's you know let's go back to, to little damien or? well, well <laughs> let's let's go let's go back to the the staircase where we first met outside swimburn pran 19 year old damien what what advice would you give to him about the kind of the journey that he was about to go on yeah uh, fake it till you make it. I think that's the best. <laughs> I'd say that with sincerity. Like that's, that really, a lot of it comes down to it. Like we all, I think everyone has a burning flame, however you want to describe it. Um, everyone has their own agenda, their own um, direction, which they in, innately want to follow. But a lot of people get uh, taken off course, uh, myself included. And, societal pressure and all that kind of mumbo jumbo comes into play and uh, insecurities and you know but like at the end of the day we're all we all come into the world screaming and like we all come in at the same some people are more privileged than others but we all come in with the same you know on the same level some people get a leg up others don't but at the end of the day we're all capable of like doing incredible incredible things and um you know i like i said when when it was first proposed to me to even visit la let alone move but just visit that was like to me that was a preposterous thing like that would never like to I, the thought of it seemed absurd um I, at that point in my life i wasn't even capable of the concept of moving there it was hard enough for me to believe just visiting was the hard thing and that sounds weird to say now but at the time um that's just that was a limitation that was kind of um impressed uh on me you know um so what I, in this short existence that i've had i've i've learned to just come uh come to terms with the fact that you can kind of do whatever you want so long as you're determined enough um so i'm i'm attempting to apply that to my um day to day um but that's that's advice I'd, i would like to give myself or anyone else that you can you know if you if you believe in yourself you can achieve something you might not achieve it but you know it's just about taking action just about doing shit putting one foot in front of the other yeah, I mean, like it's like and, you know, fake it till you make we, it. Like we you exist, say. isn't that crazy? <laughs> like, like we like is like when we're not owed anything. Like yeah. the universe owes us nothing. Like a lot of people feel like, oh, I should have that, or I want this, um, but nothing's owed to you. Like you have to. What is it that Kevin Smith says at the start of uh, his his autobiography? Uh, he's like the jizz. <laughs> yeah, he's like you. You've you've won the uh, what is it? You've won the role of a lifetime. You. I agree. 100%. You, you know, you 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 won a one in one million or one billion or one trillion horse race to get into that egg. I feel like I've already won the race, and everything's yeah, kind of a bonus. Yeah, that's this is like the after point. party. Yeah, life. Um, 
I don't know if you want to go down this rabbit hole. This is a deep, deep, dark, you know, Mate, we, philosophy. We, yeah, go on. Just finish finish your thought. Well, I, I just feel like like it just it's a continue continuation of what I said before. I'm not owed anything. Like anything is possible, and it's it's whether or not you're willing to give it a crack. And mm. I've given plenty things a crack, and some things not you know hasn't worked out how I wanted it to, and so be it. Um, other things have. Um, the thing that keeps me going is the fact that I don't feel I'm owed anything in particular and just gratitude, you know, you get, you get what you, what you get is great, you know? Mm. Well, I feel like we could probably go down that rabbit hole for a while, but we have already been going for uh, 100 minutes. So I'm going to salute you, say Slauncher one more time to another, uh, hopefully many more than 12 years of uh, continued Jamison drinking mm. and uh, end on the question that you may is probably the only question that anyone can actually plan for when they're going to be on this podcast which is the final question that I ask everyone which is Who what makes you silly framed Roger Rabbit <laughs> <laughs> what oh. makes you silly Damien hold up hold up it's a long chair What makes me silly? That's the deep question. Yeah. Like what? Like what? I know um, that's why. I like that's why. I, that's why I stopped the interview now because <laughs> I need. To, I've reserved twenty minutes for you to do to answer okay, this question. Right, well, saddle up, everyone. Yeah, should we get allow everyone to just make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or something like a? Three just answer minute. the fucking question. All right, I'm going to ask the question. What makes me silly? Well. I feel like that my, uh, it's my, I, I, I lean on silliness like a crutch. <laughs> it allows me to, um, uh, diffuse a situation. I'm, uh, my silliness is a icebreaker of, of sorts. Um, if I find myself in a new situation where I don't know someone too well, I will crack a joke. And that will typically diffuse the situation. Um, that's my um, that's my the, the silliness of me, and that's what I what it manifests in a day to day. I guess like I'm, I tend to be a, a a goofy person, you know, from from time to time. And do you have an example? Uh, well, I believe twelve years ago, Al, <laughs> <laughs> at the base of the steps. <laughs> yeah. We were. Um, I don't even know what I said. I don't. I, I think I made a reference to the fact that when we w- had our orientation at uh, for our university course on day one, for some reason they they put everyone at the base of the stairs, and it, the stairs were relatively high, like twenty or thirty steps high enough, and um, all the staff of the film and TV course were at the, the top of the stairs and we were all like sheep at the bottom of the stairs and it was it was kind of like an, an awkward um, setup, but it was convenient like it served its purpose you know like they needed to address us we needed to listen you know um, but I felt the need to um, talk to someone I hadn't I don't think I talked to anyone at that point um, 
and you just so happened to be next to me. <laughs> and I leant over and I, I made some witty quip about the, uh, you know, the uh, segmentation of them and us, and, and the rest is history. As they say. Yeah. What noise annoys an oyster? An annoying noise annoys an oyster. That's right. Did I did I come out alright? An annoying noise annoys an oyster. An annoying noise annoys an oyster. That's right. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you.